Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, We are excited looking over the horizon at the possibility of uh, being able to be, thank you, ma'am, being able to unmask in the future. And we're hoping that as Omicron comes down, we're going to be able to uh, be have food service again and things like that. Uh, But in the meantime, we have a very special opportunity to um, thank a couple of folks for their ministry, not only amongst us, but for the church for uh, for many years. I'm going to ask Barb uh, to come up and join me here along with Pastor Alan and Kathy. I explained to the folks in the first service that Um, We're doing this wrong, and we're doing it wrong because what should be happening today as we are celebrating 52 years of Pastor Alan and Kathy being engaged in worship ministry, as we celebrate that, we should be having a party, and we should be having lots of Norwegian food, and we should be having a really great time, but because of Omicron and the pandemic and everything else, we're not even having... Um, Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So, um, but we want to take this opportunity in any case to thank Pastor Alan and Kathy for their ministry. Can you believe 52 years? Uh, It's just, yeah. So... So back in uh, 1982 was when I began to first work with Pastor Allen. And um, that fall, the fall of, uh, of 1981, Barb and I had moved for me to go to graduate school to UW. And uh, we started attending the church prior to going on staff. And uh, that fall, the youth choir did a concert uh, called the, the uh, the Lord's Prayer, yes. I was going to say the Ten Commandments, but I don't know how you'd do that one, but the Lord's Prayer. And I enjoyed it so much, even though it wasn't professionally recorded. I remember getting a cassette, you know, where you could get the pastor's sermon and whatnot. But in this case, it was the concert and playing that in the cassette player in my car because I thought it was absolutely incredible. And that was sort of my introduction to Pastor Allen and Kathy and the worship ministry. And so we worked together for about 10 years or so. And then we went uh, separate directions. And then by God's grace came back together here at North Sound. I can remember um, the day that I asked Pastor Allen if he could come up. He wasn't on the staff at the time, but um, we we walked into this building, which at the time was the uh, conference center. And I said, Alan, do you think we could pull off a Christmas dessert in this building? Because it looked like we were about to get the little white church to start the church in. And Alan said, yeah, I think that would work. Um, but he was already um, tied up as a pastor in another setting. So I had to go to work hard to provide a courtship experience for him so that he knew that he would be valued here at North Sound Church and by God's grace um, started and uh, he and Kathy have been such a blessing wherever they've been, but certainly here you would recognize Kathy's face from the lobby pre-COVID where she served um, at the info booth, but has been very much a partner in all of the worship ministry as well. 
And so we have come to the place where uh, we want to um, thank Alan for his ministry amongst us and Kathy uh, and, and largely the 52 years as well. Um, I told the folks in the first service, and Pastor Alan, with this I'm, I'm done. I promise I won't go on too long. But um, I told the folks in the first service that um, we have been just delighted with having them be a part of this family. And they have had such an important role in terms of, of our ministry here and our outreach. And Alan is not going to be um, leaving us. Uh, but in fact, I was going to take a little break here, and then he and Kathy will be back, and uh, we'll engage on a part-time basis instead of a full-time basis, and we'll be looking after our facility and its issues. Um, the outreach that we do by way of events in the communities, we plan to continue those under uh, Pastor Allen's leadership, and then also pastoral care. So if you're aware of needs, uh, uh, prayer needs, or visitation, those kind of things, by all means, uh, let us know, uh, and uh, we will be able to, to work to accomplish um, meeting those needs. So, Pastor Allen, I'm going to give you this. If you would like to share uh, a word, there you go, sir. I should clarify something first here. Yes, I've been in ministry, my wife and I, for 52 years. But we started when we were 10 years old. <laughs> okay, so I don't, I don't want you to think there was something else. Um, I have had the incredible opportunity that I have to believe was, was given to me by God himself in having a passion for what we have done for 52 years. I didn't get up in the morning and dread going to work. I didn't, uh, I didn't dread when retirement came. I, let me go back. I did dread when retirement came. So many people dread, dread getting up in the morning and they are, are, are praying for retirement. And I said, no, I, I love what I do. So to my family, my daughters, granddaughters, great-grandkids, who all the... That's one of them right there. <laughs> that's Zoe. Um, all they have known is ministry. They were all, grown, they all were born while, while we were ministering, so that's all they've known. To my wife... If my wife were to be honest with you, she would tell you that there were many things why she married me. But one of them was because I was going to be a rich contractor. <laughs> <laughs> so then thank you to our worship team, our instrumentalists, our singers, production people, media people, for an incredible job you have done to bring us to where we are today. And to Pastor, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. Things are going to continue. Casey is going to take it and grow it. And uh, as you heard this morning, it's a phenomenal group of instrumentalists and singers that uh, God has blessed us with.
To each of you, thank you for your support. Thank you for your love. Thank you for worshiping with us week after week. And we say thank you. Amen. Amen. God bless you folks. And uh, we'll see you soon. You may be seated. Thank you for that. (laughs) I got it. Thank you. One one thing I didn't share... um, I didn't clear it with Pastor Allen either, so I hope that it's okay. But um, back in 1981, uh, Pastor Allen was actually the contractor that Kathy thought she was marrying. And that year, um, if you want to see his W-2 or 1099, that year he made $100,000. And Pastor Bob Anderson, who is a mentor and friend of both of us, who's now with the Lord, convinced Alan that he should be in full-time ministry and in worship ministry. And so um, Alan and Kathy weighed that, and that was establishing the trajectory that we have seen today. But the next year, I think his salary was $20,000, having moved from construction into a pastoral role. And uh, to me, that has spoken of... uh, the sense of calling and the sacrifice that has been on his life and Kathy's life because the sacrifice Kathy is one that you and the girls um, have borne. Um, but I know you have also had a very good life. Um, God has blessed. So it is a privilege for me to uh, not only be a colleague, but to be a friend. So God bless you. We're going to continue our series today, and then we're going to have uh, communion together. Just a word about the communion. Um, we've got some new cups this time, and after first service, we told that we're told that they're really difficult to open. So while I am doing the sermon and waxing eloquent here, you may want to try to get yours open and uh, see if that will work, see if that'll work for you. We apologize, and hopefully we'll be able to get a shipment of the ones like we have had. I, to be honest with you, I, I don't like any of these little communion things at all. The Lord's Supper should be a robust celebration, and somehow getting a, a getting out of the cup. But by God's grace, we do what we need to do to get through the pandemic, and this is one of those things that we endure. So we're going to talk about doubt today in our series from Moses' life. We have been going through lessons that we can learn growing through challenging times. And we're looking at Moses. And today we're going to talk about doubt and how we deal with doubt in our lives. I think if we're honest, we all have experiences of doubt from time to time. In a letter to Sheldon Von Aachen, C.S. Lewis wrote these words, If you don't sometimes wonder how you got to believing this cock and bull story, you're probably not thinking. Now, this is my hero, C.S. Lewis, 
talking about doubt. It's like, really? We really believe this story? And of course he does. But he talks about the, the, the wonder of it all and, and what a big deal it actually kind of is and how there are doubts that assail us along the way. I think that doubts, for most of us, don't suddenly appear out of the blue. For most of us, doubts often surround difficult times in our lives when we may sense the absence of God or we may sense that our our prayers aren't connecting. Uh, The common expression is the heavens feel like brass. Things don't seem to be going through either direction. I want to share with you about two families. The first is the family of my Aunt Ruth. Aunt Ruth is my mom's uh, youngest sister and only remaining uh, sister in her family. And uh, Auntie Ruth was the one that was closest to me growing up. I remember back uh, when I had surgery, I was five, six years old. Auntie Ruth came out from California and uh, she brought a little um, giraffe, a stuffed giraffe that meant so much to me that I still remember it these many years later. When we would go to California after Barb and I married and we had children, we would stay with Auntie Ruth. She lived in Costa Mesa and we would commute from there up to Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm or whatever. And uh, we loved being uh, with Aunt. She, uh, she was such a wonderful um, hostess for us and all of the, and all of the family. But um, I don't know, three or four years ago, Um, Her husband, Rio, passed away. This picture that I have here is probably from the 1970s. And so you have Rio and Ruth and Deb and Paul and Philip. And um, Rio had been ill and uh, eventually uh, passed away. And she lost her husband that year. But following uh, immediately on the heels of that, she also, or before, she she experienced the loss of her daughter, Deb, who is the young lady in this picture, the tallest of the kids. Deb had a degenerative lung disease that they were not able to get on top of. And so she, um, she passed away and left a husband and three boys behind. And then just this last summer, um, Wes had a birthday party and Paul came to the birthday party. Uh, he's the one in red there. And Paul came to the birthday party. He lives here in the Northwest, and uh, we celebrated Wes's birthday, but we didn't know it at the time, but he was carrying a heavy load. And when I got home from Wes's party, Paul called and said that his brother, Philip, who is the youngest one in the picture there, had taken his own life. And so Auntie Ruth now, when you look at that picture, her husband's gone, her daughter's gone, her youngest son is gone. It's her and Paul that are left. Difficult, difficult times. Difficult times. In January of 2020, just before COVID hit, we've got word that Ryan Voorhees had um, been diagnosed with a very serious and a very rare form of cancer. This is a picture from... uh, from probably the early 90s, uh, my brother John had a CB airplane at the time and stopped at Painfield. And so Sean and Ryan, Sean's on the right and Ryan is on the left, uh, got to be uh, be pilots for a moment there. And um, 
so Ryan grew up, the Voorhees family were friends of the Cranes and the Johnsons, and uh, we, were, we were very close. Uh, and uh, Ryan was Sean's best friend, really, throughout life. And now at 35, his friend was, was really dying. They went through all sorts of therapies, tried all kinds of different things to arrest the cancer. But in the fall of 2020, Ryan passed away. It's a very, very difficult time for everyone. Difficult for Sean, our son. Difficult, of course, for Ryan's family. I had an opportunity to talk to a family member and to talk about their relationship with the Lord in the midst of all of this. And this family member said that he, he had faith, um, but he was really struggling with prayer and the power of prayer because so many people around the world had been praying for Ryan who slipped away at just 35 years of age. I think these kinds of circumstances, these kinds of incidents in our lives are the time when doubt raises its ugly head. These are the kind of experiences that give us pause. We long for something different and we hope that a good God would not allow bad things to happen to good people, but we find in the journey of life that bad things do happen to good people. In our passage this morning, we see that this is the case for the children of Israel who began the exodus. They saw how powerful God's intervention was. When you think about this experience in their lives, they watched as God brought nine plagues, supernatural plagues upon Egypt. They watched as the final, the 10th plague was the killing of the firstborn in every family, every Egyptian family. In fact, all living things, animals as well. They watched that happen. And then they had the Passover when they were spared that terrible destruction of the, of the death angel. And then they got their things together and they marched out of Goshen, the land where they lived, and they headed for the Red Sea. And what did God do? He gave them a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them in that journey. Now you would think after all they witnessed that they would have the strongest of faith. Visibly, they could see God's work in their lives in powerful ways. But in the passage that we're looking at today, what happens is there's some kind of a, there's some kind of a break. They see beyond the cloud and they see the Egyptian army, Pharaoh's army coming after them. And they begin to doubt and their faith falters. They begin to murmur and complain. Chapter 14, verse 10 following. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. In spite of everything they had been through, they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Imagine, imagine what they have seen, what they have been through, and immediately they begin to doubt and begin to complain. And they're saying they would rather go back to slavery, back to captivity, than to experience the freedom that God has for them. But friends, I I think we're not so terribly different. Doubt comes into our lives for some good reasons. And when bad stuff happens to us, when bad stuff happens to good people, when we have a loving God, we can't figure it out. How does this work? This is hard stuff because it's the reality with which we live. And this morning I want to suggest four things that may be helpful in addressing this doubt in our lives. First of all, I want to suggest that we need to live in the tension. We've already talked about the fact that we live in a fallen world. We're living with the ramifications of that fall with evil being in the world. Jesus talked about the rain falling on the just and the unjust We're not protected because we're followers of Jesus Christ from bad things happening. Bad things happen to us as well. It's interesting when we look at Bible characters, some of the major Bible characters, what we find is that most of them went through difficult stuff, stuff that would lead them to a place of doubt. In the case of David, for example, Bad stuff happened in his life. Part of it was stuff that he brought upon himself, and part of it wasn't. You know the Bathsheba thing and the consequences of that, losing a son in infancy. And then another son, Absalom, comes along and attempts to steal the throne from his father by violence. David went through a lot, and in the midst of it, he cried out to God. And in crying out to God, he was authentic with what he was feeling. At times, he felt completely abandoned by God. Look with me at chapter 22 of the Psalms written by David, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer and night by night, but I find no rest. But I am I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Wow, this is from King David. This is from King David. We think of him as that triumphal king in Israel. And you may see allusions in this, in this psalm to Jesus on the cross where he talks about, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's right out of Psalm 22. 
But there's a tension within David's life and even in the expression of the psalm. So here he feels abandoned. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? But the next psalm is probably the most familiar psalm, the one that most of us probably like the best. And what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Then I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These come from the same source. They're both Psalms of David. And David so incredibly captures the tension in which each one of us live, where on the one hand in our lives we have those seasons where we wonder, God, where are you? And then we have other seasons where we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Friends, as David learned to live in the tension, so we need to learn to live in that tension. The second thing I want to suggest is that we consider God's love for us in all of life. God's love for us in all of life. In Exodus 15, we read uh, these words. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This passage is from the next chapter from where we've read already. And it's, um, it's what happens right after they crossed the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea, and if you have your Bibles, you'll notice that the text flows into poetry. It flows into a song that's called the Song of Moses. And the Song of Moses, having crossed the Red Sea safely now, talks about the steadfast love of God. The Old Testament word for this is hesed. And it's translated accurately here, steadfast love. God's love is not whimsical. It's not a love that he just feels like bestowing once in a while and that's all. But God's love is constant. It's steadfast. It doesn't come and go in our lives regardless of what we're going through and regardless of how we're feeling. His love for us is steadfast. And remember, it's an expression of the growth of the love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to which we are brought into, and it's an eternal love for us. Remember that Jesus went to the cross. And John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved the world, and God loved you and me, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It said these words were scrawled on the wall, on a wall in Auschwitz, the concentration camp. I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even though I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. Friends, the third thing that I want to suggest for us in dealing with doubt in our lives is that regardless of what's going on and regardless of our doubts, we need to live out God's purpose 
We need to live out God's purpose. Verse 15 of Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Whether we experience the closeness of God or find him far away in the moment, we have a fundamental choice. And the fundamental choice is, what are we going to do with our lives in the midst of these circumstances? We need to recognize that the world was created for a purpose. And that God created us, he made us, as part of that larger purpose, so that each one of our lives has meaning and purpose in part of the larger plan of God. And that doesn't change whether we're having a rough time experiencing God's presence or, or whether he's just as, as close as a brother or sister. We need to live out the purpose that God has called us to. I want you to consider for a moment the alternative to what I'm describing. It's brilliantly stated by the atheist Bertrand Russell. But I I wouldn't want to live in the kind of world that he describes. He said, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental, accidental co-location of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. And that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to distinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Read that and then try to have a good day. My, I wouldn't want to live with that perspective. Philip Yancey describes his own journey and his transition from a view as a skeptic to a person of faith. He says, I admit that at times I'm a reluctant Christian, plagued by doubts and still recovering from bad church encounters. I'm fully aware of all the reasons not to believe. So then why do I believe? In my own days of skepticism, I wanted a dramatic interruption from above. I wanted proof of an unseen reality, one that could somehow be verified. However, in my days of faith, such supernatural Eruptions seem far less important because I find the materialistic explanations of life inadequate to explain reality. I've learned to attend to fainter contacts between the seen and the unseen world. I sense in romantic love something insufficiently explained by mere biochemical attraction. I sense in beauty and in nature marks of a genius creator for which the natural response is worship. I sense in desire, including sexual desire, marks of a holy yearning for connection. I sense in pain and suffering a terrible disruption that omnipotent love surely cannot abide forever. I sense in compassion, generosity, justice, and forgiveness, a quality of grace that speaks to me of another world, 
especially when I visit places like Russia marred by their absence. I sense in Jesus a person who lived those qualities so consistently that the world couldn't tolerate him and had to silence and dispose of him. I could go on and on. In short, I believe not so much because the invisible world impinges on this one, but because the visible world hints in the ways that move me most at a lack of completion. Friends, the scriptures inform us that we're part of a divine plan. We're working for a common future as agents of the kingdom of God. We bring transformation to this world, even as we look forward to the world to come. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, we're made for a purpose. Just before Moses stretches out his staff toward the Red Sea, parting at delivering Israel, there's this verse that we already quoted. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. (laughs) Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In the midst of their fears, in the midst of their anxieties, in the midst of their suffering, tell the people to go forward. Friends, in spite of the pain, we move on with purpose. I was amazed at the story of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. On December 11, 1979, Mother Teresa, the saint of the gutters, went to Oslo, Norway, dressed in her signature blue-bordered sari and shot in sandals despite below-zero temperatures, the former Agnes Bojaxiu received that ultimate worldly accolade, the Nobel Peace Prize. In her acceptance lecture, Teresa, whose missionaries of charity had grown from a one-woman folly in Calcutta in 1948 into a global beacon of self-abrogating care, delivered the kind of message the world had come to expect from her, It's not enough for us to say, I love God, but I do not love my neighbor, she said. Since dying on the cross, God had made himself the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one. Jesus' hunger, she said, is what you and I must find and alleviate. Finally, she suggested that the upcoming Christmas holiday should remind the world that radiating joy is real because Christ is everywhere. Christ in our hearts, Christ in the poor we meet. Christ in the smile we give and in the smile that we receive. But now this is interesting. Less than three months earlier before this speech, she wrote a letter to a spiritual confidant, a priest, the Reverend Michael Vanderpeet. And only recently has it been made public. She wrote with weary familiarity of a different Christ, an absent one. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you, she assured assured Vanderpeet. But for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. For some 56 years, other than a short break, she didn't experience the presence of God. But what did she do? 
She went forward. She cared for the sick, the dying, the needy. Tell the people of Israel to go forward in spite of famine, danger, peril, sword, in spite of death and disease and divorce and discouragement. Tell the people of North Sound Church to go forward. You were made for a purpose. Finally, friends, a lesson from Job as we, as we close today. Prepare our hearts for communion. Scholars think Job is one of the oldest books in the, the scripture. And we don't have time to go through the whole story of Job, but you kind of have the gist of it. A very honorable, righteous, good man has things taken away from him by Satan. So he loses his livestock. He loses his farm. He loses his family. And finally, he loses his health. And in the midst of all of this, friends come and try to be encouraging, but they're not encouraging. What they say is not helpful. And then Job himself decides that he's going to address God in the midst of this challenging time in his life. And in chapter 3, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. Backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. God lets Job share his heart. It continues. And then it's God's turn. And this is what God says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In this dialogue, God asked Job some questions that Job can't answer because Job is not God. And friends, the point is that as we confront the mystery, of bad things happening to good people in our lives, we don't know the answer fundamentally because we're not God. We don't have a God's eye view of the bigger picture, of the consummation of the ages, of what God's work and his purposes are moving towards. We don't see it from his perspective, but in the meantime... We need to acknowledge his steadfast love and his purpose for our lives and the joy in the realization that better things are to come. I close with a beautiful piece of prose from Raina Maria Rilke. He says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live along some distant day into the answer. One day we will have better answers. But for now, God's word to us.
is to go forward. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your presence in our worship, in our lives. Lord, may you be with us and help us, Lord, to be able to recognize the power of the instruction of your word. Lord, I thank you that we are created from your love. That in our entire lives, when we feel close to you or we feel far away, we are loved by your steadfast love. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do what we are called to do. To join with your purpose of the ages. To become agents of your kingdom. So that through our lives and your purposes for us, we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' name, amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. I invite you to stand with me, if you would. We can speak like we do this morning because our Lord knows suffering. He went to the cross. He became the means by which our sins are forgiven. And today we remember that through his body that was broken for us and through his blood that was shed for us. This is the Eucharist. This is a great thanksgiving. And we take a moment out of our lives to say thank you and to remember the wonder of the cross and the resurrection. I invite you to take a moment in the quietness of your own hearts to think about your vertical relationship with God and whether anything has come into that relationship or your horizontal relationship with people and whether things have come into that relationship. And take a moment to confess, to share it with the Lord, and to repent, to turn from it and to say, I want, I want to do better in that relationship, whether that's with God or with others. And then in a moment, we are going to have a corporate prayer, prayer together that we'll join together in. And then remember the Lord's Supper. So let's humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Let's join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins, to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The words of institution that we use to follow in this pattern that has gone on for 2,000 years, remembering the death and resurrection of our Lord, 
comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Help us, Lord, to live into the joy of forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to live in to your steadfast love. And, Lord, to fulfill the calling and the purpose that you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.